1: Hello and welcome to Star Trek comic book review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 158 recorded March 1st, 2014. So this will be the real 158, not that
0: April Fool's business that we did last week.
1: (laughs) Ha ha ha, folder all. Yes, this is the real stuff with uh, Deep Space Nine.
0: Right, although last week I did enjoy the Star Wars.
1: Uh, Me too. It was an unexpected treat when you had mentioned the possibility of it. I was not even aware that that had existed, so it was very nice.
0: Right, and I think it's going to be an uh, eight-issue miniseries. I think last week we kept saying six, but uh, I think since the podcast I noticed that, that there's supposed to be eight issues.
1: Cool. Well, It was a pretty beefy script, apparently. And, of course, I'm sure they kind of added to it, so the writers right. of the comic.
0: What I've heard is that originally he wrote the script and it was like... All what would be the six movies, and then he had to just take the middle piece out to make a new hope, so um maybe the you know the whole Yoda thing will
1: be in there too i don't know i haven't haven't got that far oh, so the original script actually covered theoretically six movies, right huh, and then I he, had no idea about that, and then he purposely just took the middle part out to huh. give
0: it that serialized 19, you know, the 1930, 40 serials. Right.
1: Feel. Okay. Well, interesting. So, okay.
0: But anyways, but that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be no. doing Star Trek.
1: Exactly. And yeah. we're, we're going to be doing Marvel's DS9. Right.
0: So we finished off Malibu's DS9 and we're jumping into Marvel's version.
1: Exactly. And um, comparing contrast time, uh, one of the biggest differences I see is in the colors. I think the color uh, vividness was uh, better in Malibu.
0: Right. I agree. Uh,
1: but other than that, I mean, well, you know, different uh, pencilers, of course, and different artists involved, so different interpretations. But uh, th- these are decent stories.
0: Right. And yeah. the, the art style is also quite a bit different in these. Their they're, they're page layouts are quite a bit different than what uh, Malibu oh. and DC Comics did.
1: So. Good point. Good point.
0: That's also a little, a little, fixed, a little adjusting.
1: The Malibu was pretty straightforward compared to some of the layouts we see uh, in these books.
0: Right. And you know, this is also—I think there was actually a year skipped, so this would be like season five-ish of uh, Deep Space Nine, where Malibu ended at the very beginning of season four. So.
1: Ah. Right. You know,
0: Cisco's a little more goatee. You know, warp. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Gone. No more head hair.
0: I think ROM has actually been promoted to something other than just the comic relief bartender. You
1: know. Exactly. As an, as an engineer, as we'll see in, in an upcoming issue. Okay. So. so there are differences. Okay. If there's nothing else you want to cover, I can jump right into issue number one. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Its title is Judgment Day. And its published date is November 1996. The creative team is made up of writer Howard Weinstein, penciler Tom Greinberg, inker Al Milgram, colors by Matt Webb, letterer Jack Morelli, color seps by graphic. Just the word graphic. Editor Bobby Chase. Chief Bob Haras. The cover features the eight main characters of the DS9 show in a posed portrait with stern looks on their faces. Since Worf is in the portrait, we know the time period is uh, season four or later, and I guess Donovan just mentioned it, more like five. In the background is DS9 and the wormhole. In Ops, Major Kira listens to an incoming message from Captain Sisko. He and Worf are in Defiant, reporting that they have the crew of a Federation observatory that is studying an unstable protostar in the Satoki Nebula. The crew was exposed to dangerous levels of radiation when the observatory's shield failed. No one died, but they will all need radiation therapy back at the station. Suddenly, O'Brien reports something is coming through the wormhole. Five ships of unknown design come through, along with dangerously high levels of radiation. Hot on their tail are two Jem'Hadar attack ships. Major Kira sounds a red alert. Phasers and torpedoes stand by. The flood of radiation and neutrino emissions coming out of the wormhole appears to be locking the wormhole open. The Jem'Hadar ships are firing on the strange ships and starting to destroy them. Kira orders them to cease fire, which the attackers ignore. Sisko tells Kira to dissuade the Jem'Hadar, but her first priority is to protect the station. A hail comes from one of the unidentified ships, saying they are Amaralan, and they're pleading for help. When DS9 takes an errant hit from Jem'Hadar fire, Kira gives the order to fire using phasers. They take out one Jem'Hadar ship, DS-9 begins to shake violently. Dax reports the station and one Amaralan ship has been caught up in an energy field. The station begins to move towards the wormhole. They try to use thrusters to slow their movement, but stress on the station is too much, and they shut down the thrusters and divert power to the structural integrity fields. Too late, as Pylon-3 actually breaks off the rest of the station. Kira asks O'Brien if the station could survive going through the wormhole. He says he does not know, but unless a miracle occurs, very soon, they are all going to find out. They use the deflectors to generate low-level subspace field around the station, to increase the odds of making it through the wormhole. Meanwhile, on Defiant, Captain Sisko is trying to find out more about what is going on at the station, since communications were cut off by the wormhole radiation. Worf reports that long-range scanners are not picking up anything. The station appears to be gone. Later, after the rescue of the three Amaralans and one Jemhadar, Sisko discusses the situation with Worf and Bashir. Worf conjectures the lack of debris indicates DS9 is still intact, but where? The wormhole is locked open, but impassable. They decide to go to the brig to see what they can learn from the surviving Jem'Hadar. In the end, the soldier accuses the Federation of sending DS9 through the wormhole as the vanguard of a Gamma Quadrant invasion. They leave the brig and travel to sickbay. On the way, Warf and Sisko inform Bashir of what the Jem'Hadar said about DS9 being a weapon. They also say they saw fear in the eyes of the Jem'Hadar, which they never saw before what was he fearful of what if both the Jem'Hadar and the Amaralans were being chased by something else something in the Gamma Quadrant where DS9 is now the Amaralans confirm that they live under the whip of Dominion domination they hate the Jem'Hadar but they also do not trust the Federation they too think DS9 is a weapon and its absence means the invasion has begun the Amaralans, too, showed fear, but Sisko still does not know from what. Later, Sisko beams down to Bajor to discuss the situation with kai Win. He finds out that the wormhole being stuck open looks like a wound in the heavens, which is the prophesied beginning of an apocalypse according to the Bajoran religion. An ambitious Vedic Tuan has been capitalizing on that fear to gain power. Sisko promises he will get to the bottom of what is going on. The Kai hopes he can do that before it's too late. Sisko is hailed from Defiant. Worf informs him they know what happened to DS9. Later, at the Bajoran University Observatory, Sisko is shown evidence recorded by a Bajoran astronomy satellite that DS9 was pulled into the wormhole. Sisko tells Worf they are going after the station. But first, they need a way to pass through the wormhole despite the deadly residual radiation that is currently making it impassable. Worf and Sisko exit the observatory building, only to see an angry mob led by Kai Tuan outside the locked gates of the complex. Tuan is stirring up emotions by saying they want the emissary to tell them the truth. No more lies from Kai Wynn. Sisko attempts to tell them the truth, that Bajor is not threatened by the wormhole in its present state, but they do not believe him. They say DS9 is gone, so there is nothing to protect them. The angry crowd start coming over the fence at them. Sisko and Warp beam up to Defiant. Back on Defiant, Dr. Bashir informs Sisko, the Amaralan woman wants to speak to him privately. Sisko says he knew they had something to say, and tells the doctor he will be down as soon as possible. Meanwhile, on Deep Space Nine, Miles O'Brien is tucking his child Molly into bed while his wife Keiko looks on. After they leave the room, Keiko asks Miles if they will make it back home. O'Brien says he wished he knew. To be continued. So, okay.
0: first issue.
1: Yes, first issue, and they are trying something that we, I'm sure a lot of people might have thought a, a what-if scenario about. What if the worm, what if DS9 went through the wormhole? Well, now we know.
0: Yeah, just smooth right through.
1: Exactly. It's, it's, it's a nice little ride. Just of a course, pylon or two. Exactly. A docking pylon. A fairly large structure of the uh, station. But, yeah.
0: So did you feel that it was a little odd that nobody guide that they were able to completely 100% evacuate a whole pylon in what, a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes maybe.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but Odo was involved, so. He knows how to get things done, that Odo.
0: Yeah. I didn't see him shape-shifting and pushing people through.
1: Um, I don't think he was. He
0: could have turned himself into an escalator or a moving
1: platform and just whoop. That's it, a moving walkway. Be ready to depart the moving walkway. Yes. yes he could have done that but didn't. Nope. Yeah. It was very handy. Very handy. But really, I mean how many people are gonna be in a docking pylon? I don't know.
0: You would think a lot, right?
1: Would you? No. Well, I mean it's not like the promenade. I mean I don't know. I kinda of thought the the most of the people would be in a in a docking pylon would be involved in maintenance or going to or from if a ship was docked. Which, right. I don't think it showed uh, a ship docked on that pylon, but, eh, whatever.
0: But don't they have, like, little docking bays in there, like, where the, like the runabouts and maybe smaller ships are docked? I mean, not everything is a Galaxy-class starship that would take up one of the giant, uh, you know,
1: airlocks. Right. I don't know. I don't know where actual docking bays where smaller ships could go in. I don't know physically where they are on the station, but right. they could be on the pylon. Good point.
0: Anyways... I thought it was a little odd. No casualties there, and that, that the loss of you know one third of your pylons—no eh, big deal.
1: Yeah, right. Well, and it gets even better later in the <laughs> later in this story, uh, in, in the second issue, which I have some questions about, but I will save that for the next issue. So, what'd you think of the story overall?
0: Just did you like it? Not like it?
1: Um, it, it was fine. Um, uh, I, 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 I think it presents it – it exercises an interesting scenario, um, but also one that I don't know that I necessarily had to hear about. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like uh. – uh, but, but they executed fine. It's okay, you know. Uh, it could be a little more exciting, but right. Uh, I I think it's kind of odd how Cisco and Worf just don't come right out and say, DS9 went through the wormhole. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how many options are there? If you don't see the debris, I mean, right. they're they're beaten all around the bush. Uh, but I guess it's good to have confirmation from the uh, Bajoran Observatory folks.
0: Well, plus, did all the debris get pulled in,
1: too, or – I mean, because well, when
0: that pylon come, comes off, you think that there would be quite a bit of debris.
1: Well, was and that sucked – well, yeah, but the thing is, was the pylon sucked in with the station? I don't know. Right.
0: Yeah, that's my question.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and Wharf did say there isn't enough debris to, uh, to account for the whole station, but he didn't – I mean, I suppose it's possible the pylon could have been left behind – But it's not enough to account for the whole station. But I think he would have mentioned it. (laughs) We don't have enough debris here, but there's a really big pylon sitting here.
0: (laughs) Right. I don't know. This just, again, goes up to, you know, Star Trek technology is only as good as the story dictates it needs to be. Right. Because I've seen stories where, well, it was Malibu, but, you know, just like a couple weeks ago, we had... O'Brien scanning another sector where he thought Kira and Golda ships blew up, and he was able to scan, you know, another solar system from Deep Space Nine, and like, oh, well, I can't, I can't see enough debris, and there's traces of, there's no traces of phaser fire, blah blah blah. And then here, you know, you would think that if this tractor beam energy came out of the wormhole and sucked it in, it would leave some sort of residual particles or something that they That in some stories, I think that they could have scanned and like, oh, well, Well, there's uh, some debris particles making a trail to the wormhole or whatever. Yeah.
1: Well, and the only thing I'll say about that is, with all the radiation coming out of the wormhole, it might make sensing difficult. But if all that radiation coming out is making sensing difficult, then how do you know there isn't enough debris? I don't know. Yeah, good point. Whatever. Um, I do think that the Star Trek sensors have always been a magical thing. Um, I think they're way too powerful, but it does move a story along. So, right. I guess we can't complain too much.
0: They're too powerful sometimes, and not powerful enough at other.
1: Exactly.
0: Times. <laughs> at the writer's
1: whim. Exactly. Exactly. Transporters can get through ray shields at times, can't at other times. And uh, yes. Ah well. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, what do you th- What do you think about the artwork?
0: Overall, I like the artwork. It's different than what we're used to. Um, but at times, people's faces seem a little elongated, like they're stretched out a little bit. So uh-huh. that, that kind of threw me off time or too.
1: Yep. Well, definitely at times, they're inaccurate. Uh, the fact that they're, they're elongated is probably part of it, uh, now that you mention it. But uh, definitely, Kira, frequently, her face is just not right. Um, there are times when O'Brien... It's like, I, I can't even recognize him. It's like, that's O'Brien? Well, okay. Curly, blondish kind of hair, okay. Uh, and he's in the right place in ops, so fine, it must be O'Brien. But there are right. times when the faces just don't look right.
0: Agreed. And then I thought Cisco at times, you know, he's a bald black dude with a, with a beard. Okay, so that must be Cisco. But at times he looks nothing like Avery Brooks.
1: There you go. Yeah. yeah. And the list goes on. Right. Yeah, the, the, uh, the cover art, too, which, again, usually they're different artists doing the covers as the insides, but maybe not in this case. But, um, you know, the, again, the, the faces are are better, I think, on the cover, except for Worf and Bashir. I mean, Worf and Bashir really look bad.
0: Yeah, Bashir looks like a uh, 17-year-old pop band type
1: guy. Boy band guy, yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe who was who that guy that started with uh, the Shat on TJ Hooker?
0: Oh, I don't know.
1: I have no idea. But Heather Locklear—that's the, the...
0: the only other person I know from the <laughs> show. I've never seen the show.
1: Oh well, there there was a younger guy who was his partner okay. or something. So I guess he was supposed to get the younger female audience or something, Well, Shat took care of the older ladies. <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of looks like that guy.
0: I could see that. Maybe I mean. Yeah, he definitely looks like a young movie star type guy.
1: Yeah, right. And uh, then
0: O'Brien on the cover looks like a thug. <laughs> I mean, like, he looks very muscular and yeah,
1: big and, and and unhappy. Right. He looks like he's he's got his sleeves rolled up. He looks like he's ready to take somebody apart. All right.
0: <laughs> and Worf, did you want to talk about him? What well,
1: just. Worf is the only one who's really not looking at the uh, reader. I mean, he seems to be looking off to the, like, on an angle. But quite frankly, he looks like his eyes are kind of weird. Like, he's almost, like, be cross-eyed. But, (laughs) um, yeah, Worf Worf does not look like Worf. I mean, you know it's Worf, obviously. Right. Because of the sash, and he's a Klingon. He's the only uh, Klingon in Starfleet, so. Exactly, exactly. exactly. But it's, like, the face just is bad. Not, Not Michael Doran.
0: Yeah, and it's like his his forehead is more like the, you know, Star Trek six era Klingon forehead, and not what Michael Dorn
1: actually wore in huh? you know, Next Generation, in my opinion. There you go. Uh, you may be hitting right on the big problem. So,
0: anyways, but uh, aside from that, what do you think of the the ships and things?
1: Uh, I'm I'm fine with the ships. I think in general the ships look fine. Um, I think you know, some of the battle that goes on. Uh, I think the Hadar ships look interesting. Um, these other guys, these what, A- 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 Amalons? I, forgot, I forgot their names. Th- their ships look kind of interesting. Um, there are times when deep, when oddly enough, um, Defiant looks odd. Uh, th- there are times when it looks absolutely fine, and there are other times when defiance um nose you know so the the front part of it that's that projects out further away from the main hull uh there are times when it looks like it's almost like tucked back in to the hull a bit almost like a like a tortoise pulling its head back into the shell partially uh so that's a kind of off-putting uh for for anybody who's who's a fan of that design And and i do like that defiant starship design
0: Right, yeah, there's, there's a few shots, um, like when they first arrive, or they're on their way to the wormhole for the first time, where the Defiant reminded me more of uh, Lost in Space, the movie's Jupiter ship, you know, where it had, like, engines, and then it was, like, smooth on the front. Right. Which, you know, as you pointed out, is not what the Defiant looks like. No. It has the nacelles, and then it has a curve, and then a little protuberance type thing. Right, co- it's not really a cockpit, but it always reminded me of where a cockpit would go in, like a Star Wars ship, or in, something.
1: in a traditional ship. If the cockpit was up front, if the you know if the bridge was up front, but as we all know, it's in the middle, top. Yeah, I kind of wonder what that is, anyway. I mean, uh, deflector dish, sure, but I wonder what else was in there.
0: I don't know. Uh, you know what? Now that you mention that, I've never looked at. Uh, Defiant blueprint, so you know, I've looked at, you know, next ship, the Enterprise ships, but I've never sure. looked at one for the Defiant. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't even know for sure where the bridge is. Do is
1: uh, you know it's, for sure that it's, it's the, the middle. Top? It's the middle. Yeah, it's like the middle top.
0: Okay, so the same place where the bridge is on
1: the saucer section. Right, exactly. Okay. Huh. And, and actually, seeing blueprints on the Defiant would be kind of interesting, because we know it's a much smaller ship than the Enterprise or, um, even Voyager. But, uh, it'd be interesting to see how much smaller.
0: Right. Hmm. All right, well, that's my homework for the week. I'm going to look me up some blueprints.
1: Exactly. I'm sure it's out there somewhere on the intertubes. Right. So, I saw a ad for The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. So, full at the page... Beginning? Yeah, at the beginning, full page ad, uh... When I was a kid, I used to love Johnny Quest, and obviously this is some kind of a revival um, that I don't think lasted very long. Since I, I, well, Not that I was watching kids' TV that much in this time period, but uh, whoa, whoa, I don't remember whoa, whoa. hearing Why you have much to about it. Call
0: it kids' TV. It's kids' TV. And you, you just call it animated adventures. Come
1: on. <laughs> uh, it's aimed at kids. Not meaning that I can't enjoy it as an adult, I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually remember when this, when this show came on. Um, yeah. I didn't watch it because I was not a fan of the uh, you know the Hanna-Barbera type um, Johnny Quest, so it didn't really do it for me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm guessing it didn't do it for too many people because I don't think it lasted that long, but I could be wrong. Um,
0: yeah, I think it only lasted like one season or so. Yeah. I, I don't know that for sure. Right. But I think the original show only lasted one season.
1: Or, what? What? The, it, back in the 60s? Yeah. No, it lasted longer than that.
0: Okay.
1: I, I don't know how many seasons, but I think it... I, yeah, it must have lasted longer than a year.
0: I mean, I know that they rerun the hell out of it, just because like they did Scooby-Doo and... scooby And all that other stuff, but... Right. I, I, I thought that there was only, like, one... Season worth of.
1: of well, games. okay, there's my research <laughs> for the week, which probably won't take long. <laughs> IMDB. All right, baby. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's also an ad for uh, an X Men Star Trek toss crossover. Star
0: Trek's with an X.
1: Right. Right, right. Uh, but it, th- this one is uh, toss, not next gen. And. Uh, Looks interesting. I will have to find a time to read those one of these days.
0: Well, we'll be reviewing them um, sooner or later. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I didn't mind that one. Um, I don't think it's as good as the first contact one or the second gotcha. contact next generation X Men crossover. But right, it, it's okay. It still it took me a while to get my head around. You know, uh, that the Star Trek universe is supposed to be. You know, two hundred years after what is, at the time, current X-Men continuity. Right. Because I don't, and and it's been a while since I read it, so I might be wrong, but I don't remember them saying that it was an alternate universe. I remember them just saying, this is 200 years in our future. Right. And leave it at that. Yeah. Cyclops and everybody's now in the future with with Kirk. Which, you know, negates both Star Trek continuity and X-Men continuity, because we've seen, you know, days of future past and things like that in the comic books where we've seen what the Earth future looks like and it, it's not pretty
1: yeah so well, anyways speaking of which looking forward to that movie
0: uh, which movie oh oh, the X-Men movie
1: X-Men Days of Future Past
0: yeah I'm wondering how close to the actual comic book stories are going to stay
1: I don't know but since I've never read the original story um, you will have to inform me
0: will do that's something that I think
1: I could do. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I just hope it's a good movie.
0: Yeah, and and I kind of like how you know the Wolverine movie. Um, you know, they took a very specific set of issues from the Wolverine continuity uh-huh. and adapted that storyline into a movie, right. and stayed fairly truthful to the comic and the previous um, movie universe. So it was a nice blending of the two. So I'm I'm thinking that they, they can probably do the same thing with uh, this one,
1: Days of right. So. Well, that's good because uh, X Men as a franchise has been uh, hot and cold. Right. Really enjoyed the first one. Not as thrilled with the uh, second and third. But. And hopefully then this one will be great. Wolverine
0: Origins. Total. Wolverine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they just played that yesterday. So, I had turned that on a little bit and was watching it, and I didn't realize, but um, there's a character on American Horror Story, uh, third season, um, the Axe Man, who is a murderer right. that does terrible things with axes. Um, and he's, he's also a uh, saxophone player in Nolan's. So, uh, that's all interesting. And I didn't realize that that actor played Stryker in um, Wolverine Origins. Oh, did he? Yeah. So that was kind of it. Hey, <laughs> yeah, cool.
0: Hey, wife, come here. It's the X Man.
1: Yeah. Well, I said to her first, "It's the X Man," and she said, "What are you talking about?" And then, then she remembered. So <laughs> there you go.
0: All right. Well, I'll have to, I'm gonna have to. I do plan on rewatching all those before the new one comes out. You know, so that I can be up to date.
1: Exactly, as you want to be. All right.
0: So yeah. let's get back to Star Trek, though. May we? Yes. Oh please. So I thought the little scene with Molly, uh O'Brien and Keiko um, on the other side of the wormhole was was pretty sad. Uh-huh. I mean that was was kind of a kick in the gut. That they maybe yes they survived the the trip but they may never make it back and they may name, they may not make it very long with the condition of the station. So
1: Right. And they've got families. Uh little Molly, you know Big things are at risk.
0: So, yeah, I thought that was, you know, end on a little sour note. Yeah. Just to drive home how dire the situation
1: is. Exactly, right.
0: Because up until then, it didn't really seem like that big of a deal. Okay, they went through, pile on, fell off, nobody died. Yay. (laughs) All you got to do is go backwards, you know. And and then that last scene, you're like, oh, they might not make it.
1: There you go.
0: And then my last comment, or actually, uh, I have two more comments. May
1: I? Please do, because I'm done with my comments.
0: One, when the uh, the Jim Hadar in the brig says that he's they're not going to have him in custody for long, and then he stands up and like he's getting zapped or something. Um, what exactly do you think he tried to do? Do you think he tried to attack him and didn't know that the force field was up, or do you think he tried to take some sort of try to take his life in some way, and, and the zapping thing kept him from doing that?
1: I think he tried to go through the force field uh, on the opening to the, uh, to the brig.
0: So he's that, he's that stupid. He thought that he could just punch through it.
1: Yes. Okay. All
0: right. now,
1: now, I didn't say it was a perfect explanation. It's just the one that makes the most sense. Because what, what kind of a shocker are you suggesting that uh, Federation brigs have little shocker things in the ceiling or something that will discharge when people get too rowdy or what?
0: i don't know maybe That's... i don't know i don't i don't know i couldn't figure out what happened because it doesn't look like um cisco and wharf are you know uh standing next to each other so it's not like they're standing in front of a doorway and in the jimmy on the other side if you look at the bottom the bottom middle panel you know it looks like cisco's you know at the north side of him wharf's on the uh west side, and the Jemadar is in the middle of the two of them. Huh. So it's not like there's an archway or a doorway there that could have the force field, so I was really confused as to what exactly happened there. Plus, I don't think the Jemadar would be stupid enough to just attack a force
1: field. Well, um, you could be right about that. However, the way I read it, um, I, 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 before the force field thing happened, I thought they were actually in the jail cell with him.
0: And I think they are, because it looks like the, the guard is on the other side of the archway, and it looks like that's where the force field would be.
1: Yeah. Well, don't know. But I think all they're doing is not bothering to explain. But apparently, that Jem'Hadar is getting, uh, is feeling a lot of pain. Right. Because he goes... (gasps) ungar um, giga, whatever, as it goes, yeah, the, however he gets uh, zapped, and he's on the ground. So, in general, I don't think the uh, Federation does stuff like that. Right. Uh, right. So, who knows? Right, who knows.
0: All right, and then my last comment is, I, I, you know, they they get attacked by that mob of people in front of the Kai Wins palace or whatever it is and you know Worf breaks protocol by ordering the beam up of he and cisco and cisco yep. kind of berates him why did you beam us out i could have calmed down the mob right there's no way cisco could have thought he could control that mob no no and to berate Worf just seemed like he was i gotta lash out at somebody and you're the only person here or
1: you're you're superseding your authority I'm the guy in charge around here a little alpha male kind of thing going on but um, yeah I didn't even bother mentioning that because it all just seemed like useless dribble. right didn't seem like it made a bit of difference to the story at all Um, so fine
0: but they, they spent some time on it
1: they did unnecessary time but yes does that make them seem more human or more real? Because there is conflict, even between the the good guys? I don't know. but yeah. what, what was that? Uh, didn't we
0: read a... I think it was one of the specials or something, or maybe it was the Medola incident or whatever, where uh, McCoy was on the Enterprise-D, and he was telling the kids the reason why they used to have Vulcans on the old ships was because... They couldn't bring their families, and they needed someone to take out their anger on or something. Do <laughs> you remember that that story? Um,
1: I remember <laughs> I remember McCoy saying something that was berating Vulcans, but I didn't remember that was it. Okay.
0: Yeah, because the kids are like wide-eyed, like, ooh. Didn't know that. That's, I guess that's why Dad brings me.
1: <laughs> take out
0: his anger. But, I mean, I kind of felt like that here, that, that Cisco just needed to lash out at somebody and was no dog to beat so Worf gets yelled at for no reason just for doing his job
1: well you better watch it because i wouldn't get wharf too pissed
0: <laughs> yeah exactly
1: <laughs> payback is a b right and All i right. think Worf could uh, ex- extract some big payment
0: okay anything else
1: nothing Let's go to number two.
0: Let's go to number two, which came out December of 1996. And I think all the writing staff is the same. The only difference is that we have a new penciler uh, by the name of Tom Grindberg. The uh, issue is titled Judgment Day, The Conclusion. So the cover shows Odo standing in the middle of the page with his right arm outstretched and his Index pointing to right over the the reader's shoulder. Crouching on the ground is an exotic pink-skinned alien female, and she's firing a phaser to where the constable is pointing. What they're firing at, we don't know, but it's right behind you, so be careful. The caption reads: "Prisoner on an alien ship." Behind the the two figures, we also see a few other aliens, but uh, they're they're asleep at their desks. So them no mind. So the story starts off on the other side of the wormhole. The crew of Deep Space Nine are making what repairs they can to the damaged and misplaced station. O'Brien is spreading himself very thin. Right now he finds himself floating in space with a repair crew uh, working on the missing pylon. Inside the station, uh, repair crews risk their own lives working on the consoles and we see one exploding right underneath the hands of a young engineer. Back in the Alpha Quadrant, Cisco is meeting with the young female alien that requested a one-on-one last issue. She tells him about their religious beliefs. And that they believe in what's called a firewind that can come across the galaxy and snatch up whatever it wants. She states that it's the fire wind that came through the wormhole and pulled Deep Space Nine back through. She also tells him of their people's history with the Founders and the Jem'Hadar. Their people were refused to uh, believe in their gods, and now a small sect of people have resurfaced their old religious beliefs, and the Founders have ordered them all to be wiped out. Back in the Gamma Quadrant, Kira discusses the possibility of a truce with the damaged alien craft that got pulled in along with them. Kira states that they can repair that ship's engines, and then that ship can help tow the Deep Space Nine back through the wormhole. The leader, whose name is Torin, is reluctant. She still believes that Deep Space Nine is some sort of Federation superweapon. But when Kira offers that Torin's first officer can come over to Deep Space Nine and oversee the Federation's actions, she allows it as long as Odo joins her on her ship as a type of prisoner trade. Odo agrees, and he and the first officer named Arid switch places. As soon as Odo materializes on the alien craft, he is grabbed and tossed into a brig. Arid, on the other hand, is treated with the utmost of courtesy from both the Federation crew and the Bajoran people. Back in the Alpha Quadrant, Worf shows Sisko his plans to boost the Defiant's shields. It's worked in simulations, but Sisko believes that this still could be their best chance to get the Defiant through the radiation of the wormhole and back to the Gamma Quadrant. Back on the station, Kira opens a line with Torin. Ered informs his leader that the Federation are on the up and up and that they have no such super weapon. Torin then tells Kira that she will not be returning Odo and she's going to be using him as a bargaining chip against the Founders. Kira threatens to blow up her ship if she keeps Odo, but Torin calls her bluff and says that the Kira would never fire on Odo. Torin also tells Kira that Eren is now her crew member, and that she has no need for him anymore, and she closes the communication. Later, Dax and Kira are blowing off some steam on the holodeck by playing baseball. This is obviously the most productive use of their time and the station's limited resources. Meanwhile, the Defiant tries to break through the radiation of the wormhole, but the modified shields are not enough and they again retreat back to the Alpha Quadrant. On the station, Arid is amazed on how everything is going back to normal. People are playing games at Quark's and drinking some Synthahol drinks there at the bar. Back on the alien ship, a mutiny is in full swing and Torin is killed by another female whose name is Krayle. Krayle frees Odo and tells him that Arid was her leader and that Torrin's casual dismissal of him have left her people no option but to mutiny and take over the ship. A few firefights later, and the ship has been completely conquered. Odo then contacts Kira and tells the surprised Bajoran that the ship is ready to assist in returning the station back to its proper place. Later, the repair crews have completed their work on the engines and they're getting ready to tow the station. However, one of the alien crew proves that he's still loyal to Torin, and he locks the engines into overload. The ship will soon explode and take much of the station with it. Suddenly, the Defiant finally makes its way through the wormhole and they state that it's due to the radiation finally subsiding. Uh, Right behind the Defiant is two Jem'Hadar ships. Dax, Arid, and O'Brien craft a little trick to send a Jem'Hadar distress call from the sabotaged alien ship. They do so, and then they get everyone back to the station. The Jem'Hadar speed over to the alien craft to offer their assistance. But instead of finding any distressed Jem'Hadar, they find an explosion of antimatter that takes them all out. Later, the Defiant helps tow the station back into the wormhole, Many of the alien crew are allowed to remain on the station, but most of the other ones return to their own people back in the Gamma Quadrant. Later still, Dax and Sisko talk about the events of the last two issues, and they debate on whether there really is a vengeful god in the firewind. Sisko assures her that it is only a natural phenomenon. Dax is not so sure. Sisko then states that if there was an entity with that kind of power then now that entity knows a shortcut in order to get to the alpha quadrant. The end. Da, da, da. So, doesn't quite wrap up the firewind
1: fiasco, but it doesn't. It leaves that firewing or firewind phenomena as an ongoing uh, potential threat to the station. Damn it. Spooky. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like what they they did more effectively. I might might add on next gen. The first time they tangled with the Borg, compliments of Q. Right, right. So when they came back to the Alpha Quadrant, it was like, oh, thank, boy, <laughs> those Borg almost got us. And then uh, they said, oh, but now they know where we, you know, where we are. It'll only be a matter of time before they come. Da da da.
0: Anyway, which that awesome scene that you just talked about was completely negated later in Voyager when come to find out the federation knew all about the Borg and 7 of 9's oh, family right. have been studying them way before the events of that uh, that episode. Yeah. Uh, which I really hated. I was like she's 7 of 9 has to be 25 to 30 somewhere in that age, right? Which would mean that she was a little child way before, you know, the first season of uh, Next Generation. Right. So that that always bothered me a little bit.
1: Yeah. So so were they independent researchers or were they actually working for the Federation? I think they were independent
0: researchers, but I do think that they they did get assistance from the Federation. I mean in that one episode, I think it's uh Unimatrix 0 maybe or Unimatrix 1. It's, One of those shows that actually had her parents in it and and had all the flashbacks. Um, Right. I think, I mean, they acknowledge that the Federation is aware of their studies. And, you know, they still talk about the board being this, you know, unconfirmed type thing, but he had a model of a board cube. And they obviously knew a lot. Right. But, uh, But, I mean, even if it was like a Loch Ness Monster type thing, you'd think that somebody on the Enterprise would have known that, oh, there's this theory of. These other people, and in that episode, you talked about um, they got pushed, you know, thousands of light years away from where they were supposed to be. And yep, that's that's when they first encountered the, uh, the Borg. So, right. Again, I, I just did not like that that tying in Seven of Nine as a child
1: to the Borg in that the- far in the past. Right. right. Yep. But coming back to Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Uh, so I, I I had that same the feel of what they were trying to go for there, and it was like, eh. I mean, it, 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 you know, this never came back again. This was just something they tried to do in the comic book. So, well, you don't know that it doesn't come back again. Well, okay, in in the comic book, Donovan, in uh, the in the extended universe, Star Trek extended universe, has this ever come up again?
0: I don't know. I haven't read all the Marvel stuff. Okay, uh,
1: okay. okay.
0: We'll know in, like, 17 episodes, or issues, because this series didn't last too terribly long.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Oh, we'll find out. We thought the same thing about the Nazgul in the uh, Star Trek comic book, and Peter David kept bringing them back over and over again.
1: Yeah, but this ain't Peter David. But this is Weinstein. (laughs) Weinstein does... Weinstein is good. He's good, and and he has uh, written a lot of stuff. He's very prolific. Right. So... Okay, so we'll find out.
0: Right. So, in regards to Weinstein's writing, I don't understand why he put in the holodeck little
1: baseball scenario in the uh, it's, It sucked. So, Odo is taken prisoner, supposedly permanently by Torin, and the next thing you know, they're playing baseball. The next panel, they're playing baseball. Yeah. What? Huh? Really? No sense. No sense at all.
0: Right. So, O'Brien spreading himself so thin. You know, staying up 24 hours a day, working all over the place trying to get those pylons back on, and then Odo gets kidnapped, and then they go play baseball. Right. If I was O'Brien or Odo, I'd be like, seriously? (laughs) can't help me out here? (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was, I mean, it was, I guess, comic relief? I don't know. Just some sort of scene to take some tension off, but it didn't, I didn't, I didn't buy it.
1: Yeah. I think it was just an excuse to get a uh, holodeck scene, right? And that's That's
0: it. I just uh, if 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 I'm in a situation like that, I don't want my leader, you know, off playing Halo or something. (laughs) uh, They could be doing something to help out.
1: Now that would be cool on the holodeck doing a a Halo program. That'd be cool. That would now that's a game set. That's a game console. I'll tell you. Yeah, I can't wait till we get there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh for a second issue in a row the penciler can't get defiant right and this is a different this is a different penciler right different penciler right wow that's something so uh, again it's it the added. nose is too well it's it it's snub nosed again in this one in a panel so hmm just I'll, I'll have
0: to look around for it because I, I was that was one of the things I thought was good about this is that
1: well um I could tell you the page whoa if these they page don't have page numbers. numbers okay well it's its like the third it's somewhere around the third page
0: oh okay yeah I see it now yeah. right it does look a little smooth
1: snubby right the nose is snubby anyway just little little nitpick
0: so we didn't talk about the aliens uh what are their names again um
1: a rune or something like that. Um, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a or something like that. Right. Uh I, I, am a We are. didn't,
0: we didn't talk about their look. I thought I actually like their look. Yeah, they look kind of interesting. They're, they're purple, which purplish pink. So it's kind of a weird color, but right. You know, they don't really have a nose. They just have some nose slits, so they look a little bit like Red
1: Skull from uh, Captain America <laughs> in the face. Right. Yeah, they
0: and do they, have
1: like ridges on their head right and their ear structures are very odd right almost so they like got a big a big lobe towards the bottom the behind their jaw and then much higher up almost at the temple of the skull is another opening which i assume is the is the real ear but i don't
0: know oh okay that's it i just thought that was just the ear canal i mean right. like a little ridge you know like like like, humans have those, that ridge at the top of their ear. But you're thinking that's the actual ear canal in the, the bottom I'm th- part.
1: Yeah. I, I'm thinking the bottom is almost like some kind of residual, uh, you know, earlobe? Like an earlobe? I don't know. Right. On the bottom. Huh. I don't
0: know. Odd yeah, looking. Yeah, every there. once in a while they kind of stick out and they look like, uh, you know, not, not to keep making comparisons to Marvel characters, but... Uh, there's a villain in Incredible Hulk called the Abomination, and uh-huh. he has, like, these little fin ears, and it kind of looks like that.
1: Huh. Yeah, I know I know Abomination from the, uh... The movie. The second movie. Was it the second movie? Yeah, I think it was the second, second movie, which, which I was, liked quite a lot.
0: I liked, I liked that movie, and I liked that version of the Abomination. I yeah. always hated the Abomination from the comic book. Oh. Because he had these little weird fin ears. Right. It's hard to take someone seriously when they got fin ears. Look a little bit like a fish Right And
1: he's green So Right That didn't help Right So anyways I kind of like the How they have a little easter egg On the cover Where they show In a blast point (laughs) In a blaster blast point On that bridge uh, Behind to the right of Odo They have the Milgram and Grunberg's uh, Names Right Uh, You know the The inker and the uh, Penciler So that means they did
0: do the cover then
1: Well, they definitely did the uh, comic itself. You would think... Yeah, you would think they did the cover, too, if they put their name there. Yeah, I didn't
0: notice the signature there.
1: Yeah. A cute little Easter egg. It's interesting that the uh, Amaralan female, who appears to be firing on Odo's order, is using something that kind of, but not quite, looks like a... uh, a Type 1 hand phaser. Right, it does. It do. It do.
0: But that never happens in the story because Odo never calls the shots during the mutiny.
1: Insurrection.
0: The mutiny, yes. He just kind of hangs it back. Right. So what would you think of the uniforms that the, the spacesuits that, that O'Brien and them are wearing in the beginning? I think they're
1: fine. The helmets are a little different. Because when you look at the helmet, especially like from an, a higher angle, it seems like they, they jot out quite a bit forward. Right. So they're, they're kind of, what, deep? I don't know if... I think, I think deep's the right word. So they're kind of interesting. Yeah.
0: Right. I mean, they, they obviously look like the first contact spacesuits, but, but just not quite. It's like, a, it's like a prototype of those uniforms,
1: or those spacesuits. Right. Well, since it's pretty much an unwritten rule that seems to be followed, uh, you must have a different. Spacesuit every time you do a comic with a Star Trek spacesuit in it. <laughs> every time we need a different design. Right. Uh, but good point. It, it is uh, reminiscent of the uh, First Contact spacesuit.
0: And it's handy that there on the very first page, we, we see the spacesuits in the first page of the story, and then right to the left of that, we see an advertisement for Star Trek
1: First Contact Playmates toys. And, and what one is on one the- of the characters wearing? The spacesuit. The spacesuit, exactly. Good point. And the helmet looks extremely similar. Only, yeah. it looks like it's jutting... In the comic, it looks like it's jutting out even further forward, at least that one guy. Right. Directly under and to the left of the uh, title, on the title right. page.
0: Right. Yeah, where the, the actual suit in the movie was pretty flat. These yeah. do look like they, they have a like a 45 degree angle coming out to a point at right. the chin. Right. So... All right, what else you got comment-wise? Because I think I'm monopolizing this
1: one. Oh, that's fine, because I don't have that many comments. Um, I was a little taken aback first about Rom being on the engineering staff. Uh, That is something I did not remember at first from the uh, TV show. But uh, correct, Rom did spread his wings a bit uh, in the TV show. So um, he was a, a key player on the repair staff.
0: Right. He was part of the Bajoran maintenance team, not necessarily Federation. Ah. Huh. Because Nog has to be the very first Ferengi to join Starfleet.
1: Yeah, well, right. Yeah, he he's not part of Starfleet. So, yep. So I thought that was that took me off uh, guard at first, but it's good to see Rom in a story.
0: Right. Not uh, anything stupid. Just being <laughs> competent, actual competent at what he does.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. I thought it was odd that they didn't even, I mean, they showed nothing about DS9 going back to the alpha quadrant. It's just nope. Okay, we're in the gamma quadrant and we're going to get over there and bing, you're there. <laughs> and you fast forward. Okay. So, yeah, I thought that I, I thought it was a bit abrupt, right. but that's fine. Move things along, I guess, but
0: and I also thought it was very convenient that the ship the ship that they're on that was going to tow them, sabotage, about to explode, waits forever to explode by the way the Jem'Hadar then go to that ship to go to that distress call and then it explodes and and blows the Jem'Hadar ships up too Yeah, boy that's convenient
1: very convenient
0: and that the Jem'Hadar doesn't have sensors to say hey no one's on this ship maybe we shouldn't go to it
1: Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or maybe we should keep our shields on. I, I don't know. Uh, something that would keep them from blowing up along with the uh, the pigeons. Exactly.
1: Engines. I mean, they should be at least at yellow alert. So shields right. should be up. Good point.
0: But as we saw last issue, Jim and I are not too bright in this. They just run into force field and surprise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're thugs. They're just strong arm thugs for the founders.
0: I do want to make a comment on the ad at the very end. There's an ad for Crash Bandicoot the first game for the, uh, okay. the first Crash Bandicoot game for the PlayStation. Okay. I just remember when that game came out, my uh sister was a huge fan. And I didn't play it all that much, but I saw it played a lot. So it was just kinda cool to see it and remember what I was doing about this time watching that game being played.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, pretty big ad.
0: That's a two-page spread.
1: Man. Two-page spread, man. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that was like Naughty Dogs one of their very first games and now they they've gone on to make um, you know, some really great games like uh, Uncharted and
1: Oh, really? Last of Us and
0: things like that for the oh. PlayStation,
1: so I hear Last of Us is quite good.
0: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played it yet. I really want to though, but it's hard to find time. Exactly. All right. That was my last thing.
1: Cool. So with that story wrapped up, let's go on to the third issue, which starts a new uh, multi-parter, titled The Cancer Within, Part 1. Published date, January 1997. Writer, Mariano. So was was there a second name that you saw?
0: Nope, just the one.
1: Mariano. Okay, great. So we got Cher, and we got Mariano. Okay. Penciler is Tom Greinberg, inker Al Milgram, collars Matt Webb, letterer Jim Novak, editor Bobby Chase, chief Bob Harass. The cover shows Dr. Bashir using his medical tricorder on an unconscious person that has lesions on their hands and neck. Worf is behind him, carrying a woman with lesions on her face. Lettering states, a deadly plague infects the station, and the Maquis are involved. The name of the place, Deep Space Nine. Station repairs are the staff's top priority, since the station's recent round-trip through the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. Cisco estimates the station should be fully operational in just several days. However, out of the Badlands comes a damaged Federation shuttle towards the station. It is broadcasting a plea for help. Dax reports only two of the six crew members are still alive, according to censors. Kira warns that since it's heading towards them from the Badlands, it could be a Maquis trick. Sisko says the contents of the shuttle does not sound like an attack force to him, and makes the decision to tractor it in. To be on the safe side, Odo and Worf will accompany the medical emergency team that will meet the dock shuttle. When they open the shuttle door, they see one person crawling towards them with pustules on their exposed skin and visible vapors coming off their body. All he can say is, Help us! Dr. Bashir immediately orders the computer to raise an emergency containment field around the open hatch. He goes on to ask for the crewmen of the shuttle to be transported directly to the infirmary's quarantine area. As Bashir says he hoped he was in time with the quarantine field, Kira and a male member of the emergency team fall to the ground. Later in the quarantine room, Dr. Bashir and Dax, both dressed in isolation suits, report to Sisko that the shuttle carried a plague of unknown origin. It's apparently airborne and fast-acting. So far, only Bajorans and humans seem affected by it. Julian wants to examine the Bajoran security guard who was at the hatch but did not fall ill like Kira did. Cisco tells Bashir they need to find out more about the virus and fast. Odo reports more people falling ill all around the station. It's spreading like wildfire. Dr. Bashir tells Cisco the rate of infection is faster than any known naturally occurring virus or bacteria so it was likely artificially engineered. Cisco does not believe that the Maquis would purposely use biological weapons against the Federation. They are former members of the Federation, and in some cases even Starfleet. Meanwhile, deep in the Badlands, on the largest moon of a gas giant planet, lies a secret Maquis base. A splinter group of scientists and researchers, who are responsible for the events on DS9, are speaking about a lone shuttle. The upshot is that after an accident, some of the researchers left in a shuttle, a shuttle that went directly to DS9. The leader maintains that their work must go on no matter what happens to the shuttle or the station. A dissenting female voice says that this latest incident with the shuttle proves the level of secrecy maintained in this research outpost is anti-productive and even dangerous, Another woman says, Mother! With exasperation in her voice. The older woman turns out to be Dr. Pulaski, and the younger woman, her daughter named Jackie. As they move off to have their own discussion, the two men left behind say it was a mistake to bring Dr. Pulaski here. She is still too loyal to Starfleet. They will never understand that the outlawed germ warfare materials they are tampering with were meant to be used to drive the Cardassians off the disputed planets. It was only supposed to affect the Cardassians. Now their entire research facility has been infected, and by now, DS9 also. Jackie and Dr. Pulaski continue to argue. Jackie asked her mother to the facility to help with a virus run amok, not to have their whole facility turned over to the Starfleet. Going to Starfleet to help Deal with this virus is not an option. Jackie runs off. Dr. Pulaski decides she will do some research of her own, then contact Deep Space Nine herself. Meanwhile, back on Deep Space Nine, two men dressed in black protective suits set a charge on the Maquis shuttle to blow up all records pertaining to the virus and the shuttle's origin point. In Ops, they trace the explosion to the shuttle bay where the Maquis shuttle was stored. Cisco orders Worf and Odo to the bay to catch whoever set off the explosion. O'Brien reports the explosion damaged an important external power coupling. Power is failing to critical systems. O'Brien calls his people and tells them to suit up for an emergency spacewalk. In the infirmary, Bashir and his people are moving the infected into stasis chambers in reaction to the power outage. Communications is lost between the infirmary and ops. Sisko tells Dax they are now down to their comm badges until O'Brien fixes or bypasses the damaged power coupling. Near the explosion, Odo and Worf find and take down the two saboteurs. Sisko says he wants to talk to them. In the infirmary, Dr. Bashir tells Dax, they have less than three days before the entire station will be infected. They must find a cure before then. Bashir also tells Dax, the virus is not only man-made, but it is still mutating. On the outside of the station, O'Brien, Ram, and the rest of the repair team is working fast as as they can to seal up the power conduit ruptures. Suddenly, a power buildup begins and is just about to spike near an engineer named Desmond. The power spike fries electronics all over the ship, including the work team's magnetic boots. They begin to drift away from the station, but luckily have an old-fashioned safety line that one of the engineers anchors to the station hull Though O'Brien says more than ever they need to get the power back on for the sick bay and infirmary. Rom points out that without power they cannot open the external hatches that is their only way back into the station. They will asphyxiate out here. O'Brien points out that they are more likely to freeze to death when their battery packs give out before they use up their oxygen. Cleverly, O'Brien is able to fashion a compressed air jet pack device That takes the entire repair team to the defiant. Once there, they get inside and are able to get new suit components. Freshly equipped, they get back out there and fix the conduit ruptures. They get the power back on. Dr. Bashir reports that with the power back on, the patients in the infirmary are as safe as they can be given their condition. He says to get to a cure, they must get to the source of the infection. Sisko says Odo and Worf are working on that now. Worf and Odo begin the interrogation of the two captured Maquis prisoners. Worf is not in a generous mood. Meanwhile, at the secret Maquis research facility, Dr. Pulaski is clandestinely searching through the research records and finally confirms that Jackie and the other researchers are actually created the virus. She runs to the quarters... She has been sharing with Jackie where a long-range calm is kept. On the way, she realizes that if Jackie was exposed to the virus from the beginning, she should be showing symptoms by now. When she gets to their quarters, she finds her daughter falling to the ground and covered in lesions. No, not my daughter, Dr. Pulaski says. To be continued. Doesn't look good. No. No. Those lesions are not pretty. They're not pretty, but it, they, they
0: don't seem all that fatal because people on Deep Space Nine are getting it and... Or wait, hold on. Yeah, people on Deep Space Nine are getting it and nobody's dying.
1: Uh, Well, not yet. But I think uh, they've already seen the people that came over on the shuttle die. So...
0: But they had it for a I while. I think
1: that's... Well, and the interesting thing is, they probably had it. Uh, were exposed to it not that long before Pulaski's daughter was.
0: Right. She Odds
1: are for a very long time. Right. So, um, but the thing is, I think I think they've established that the end game here, unless they find a cure, is everybody dies. So.
0: Yeah, that'll stink.
1: <laughs> Put a little damper on things.
0: So uh, a few. Maybe longer than a few, but uh, a while back there was a story that had Pulaski in it and – or it was mentioned that there – Beverly was talking – Beverly Crusher was talking to a young woman and they mentioned Pulaski and you were very adamant that that woman, the young woman, was Pulaski's daughter. And I kind of argued with you that I don't think Pulaski has a daughter. Uh, Do you remember that conversation?
1: I do. I remember that conversation.
0: So, were you thinking of this story when you kept saying that that was the same woman?
1: No, not at all. Just
0: complete coincidence that, come to find out, she does have a daughter.
1: Yes. Right. And who's in the it was the. Field. It was the, um, as I recall, and it was a while ago, it was, uh, she looked like Plasky, in my opinion. And I had a few other reasons to go off on that wild conjecture.
0: Hmm. Well, it looks like it finally paid off.
1: Well... This it wasn't the same people. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, Pulaski has a daughter, but apparently, no, it wasn't the woman I thought had the was her daughter uh, in that uh, episode we did long ago. Right.
0: Okay, just throwing that out
1: there.
0: Huh? I was going to give you kudos.
1: Well, I don't know why, but uh, yeah. So she does have a daughter. Uh, and we see that she's uh, getting ready to die. And I guess um, she must have found the Fountain of Youth somewhere, because uh, she's drawn... or Pulaski? Pulaski. Because she's drawn quite a bit younger.
0: Well, we already know she has the Fountain of Youth. It's called the Transporter. We even have an episode to back this up, that when you get really, really old, all you have to do is have somebody get a piece of your hair from when you were younger, and somehow, through the magic of the Transporter... You can be back to your young age.
1: Exactly. Yet another dangerous piece of technology, um, which you've got to scratch your head and say, well, why aren't they doing this all the time? Right. Dr. McCoy being the first guy up to bat.
0: <laughs> well, he, he doesn't trust the transporter.
1: <laughs> to make me younger?
0: No way. <laughs> yes, I think, I think McCoy would actually uh, not do it
1: yeah <laughs> right
0: it's unnatural
1: yeah but he's really old and, as we saw him uh in that next gen episode so if anybody would uh would benefit from it it would be him true and and the other thing i know we talked about this before but if they scan you down to the mole, you know down to the atom and then recreate you someplace else i mean they got all the information sure uh all I have to do <laughs> is keep on analog tape, uh, that information, and they can just, you know.
0: Right, analog, because the digital, is, it's too much for digital.
1: It, apparently, apparently.
0: According to DC Comics, you have to have analog tape. <laughs> then you can clone a person. Exactly. And somehow the clone person, as soon as they materialize, knows that they're a clone. Which yes. Which I didn't get from that issue. That's,
1: that's amazing. Yes, I've got. have anyway. got. I have a four terabyte hard drive that is digitally based technology, but I'm sure my uh, compact cassette back from the 70s could hold on to more information.
0: There you go. You just need more tape.
1: I just need more tape. Right. You know, maybe uh, a cartridge the size of my house. I don't know. Probably bigger. Probably bigger. You're thinking too small. <laughs> I'm thinking too. It's got to be the size of Rhode Island. Okay.
0: So, anyways, I like that Pulaski's in this. Uh, I didn't care for her character in season two. I thought she was. I thought they tried to make her too, too much like McCoy, and she just didn't, just didn't fit right that, that ensemble cast. But uh, but since she is part of Star Trek canon, I always enjoy when she pops up in various stories. Right. And when I saw her here, it was a it was a surprise. Uh, you know, because at first, when she turns around, she looks like a. 30-year-old woman, if that old, uh, and this other woman is calling her mother, you're like, okay, well, she must have had her really young because she doesn't look that old and then you find out, oh, it's Pulaski. Just very young. Just,
1: just drawn really young and thin. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's not until like the one, two, 4th fourth, fourth or 5th panel that we actually see Pulaski that it finally looked like her.
1: Yeah.
0: And I was like, oh, that's who it is.
1: Diana Muldower isn't that her name?
0: Right, Muldow.
1: Muldaur, Okay.
0: I wasn't correcting you. I was I was agreeing.
1: Oh, okay. Um, speaking of faces, hmm I think the cover, <laughs> which features Bashir and Wharf again, it it doesn't look like uh, like the actors. It doesn't look like Michael Dorn, and it doesn't look like um, uh, what's Bashir's name? The actor Siddig. C- Alexander City. There you go. Okay. Doesn't look like him. No. I mean, you know that's them, but again, it doesn't look like him.
0: Right. Yeah, I thought Worf actually looked more like. Um, Alex? Kang from uh, Star Trek 2. Oh, Kang. Okay. No, gotcha. no, no, no. Is his name Kang?
1: Well, okay. Okay. Um, no. Kang, okay. No. Kang, wasn't he the one in Star Trek 6 that was quoting Shakespeare?
0: I thought that was Chang.
1: Oh, Chang. Okay, you're probably right.
0: I don't know. Anyways, I'm thinking of, yes, uh, Christopher Lloyd's Star Trek. So that's Star Trek 3. Right, right. Star Trek
1: 3. Right. Search for Spock or whatever. You, search for Spock. Do you yeah. see
0: it? Or, I mean, obviously, you do see it since you were quoting him.
1: <laughs> yeah, he does. He, he looks like uh, he looks like him. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd, not Michael Dorn.
0: Not exactly like either one of them, but. No, it's closer. The, beard, the way the mustache is. That's yeah. what I was
1: thinking. Yep. Little longer face,
0: and uh, the Bashir. I agree with you. Doesn't uh, he? Doesn't look like the boy band from the first episode or the right. first issue, and he doesn't look like real Alexander City. Here.
1: No, but at least he looks like he might be Indian. Right. You no, know, the, the the skin's a little darker and dark brown eyes and right. closer. Right, but not quite there. So, and doesn't and doesn't uh, Worf seem to be because he's carrying this lovely, lovely uh, young blonde girl with these lesions on her face, does it almost look like the look on Worf's face is like, ooh, she was hot before all these lesions popped up here. Ooh.
0: I think he's thinking, ooh, I hope I don't get cooties. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, yes. Yuck.
0: So, second page in, if you're reading it on the computer, you suddenly regret that you can't just flip the computer over, the monitor
1: Yeah. 90 degrees.
0: Yes. It's a two-page spread, centerfold style, where you have to actually rotate the book in order to read it.
1: Right. So it's a uh, kind of a tall rather than wide. uh, So a portrait, not a landscape picture. So, yes, and since I do normally uh, read it on the computer, rather than me grabbing the handy little um, PDF reader functionality to, to... to flip the picture, I just turn my head to the left, ninety degrees. It's not very comfortable. That's funny.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't. I've kind of given up on pulling them out of the box and just. I'm just reading them off uh, the PDFs that were on that DVD. Right. Um, which you can still get off of Amazon for like ridiculously cheap now. So it's called the uh, Star Trek: The Complete Comic Book Collection. Uh, it has all all the comic books up into. Uh, the last uh dc stuff before it went to idw but anyways so i've been reading them on my uh tablet or my phone so it was a little more convenient for me to rotate the device versus right. my uh my head 90 degrees right but uh when the uh the guys were coming out of the airlock and they're all boily and, and melting it looks like cuz it actually looks like there's like steam coming off of them
1: brown steam yuck
0: right so, am I just reading into it, or did you think of the scene from RoboCop when that one guy crashes into the vat of acid, or toxic waste, oh, and right. you see him later kind of stumbling around, half-melted, saying, Help me! <laughs> and he gets run over by a car, and pops like a water balloon.
1: <sighs> or a grape. Uh, yeah, I wasn't thinking of that feel-good scene, but uh, now that you mention it, Yes! Great scene great scene <laughs> great and and this is Star Trek, but i I just need to ask really quickly. I know you've seen the uh, remake of Robocop in a nutshell. Was it good?
0: It was good, good very good it It did not try to rehash the old one. it just told its own story and, uh-huh. and put a different spin on the whole thing, so okay. Uh, I liked it. I liked how it it didn't just try to rehash everything. It, it
1: Right. It
0: just did its own thing. The only thing that's really the same is the guy cop named Alex Murphy becomes a cop. Right. That's, that's the only thing that's the same. Rest of the movie 100% new and it, I I liked it. I thought it was it, it was good.
1: Good. Good. Is I that not
0: shell enough? I will it seems like I drunk on a little bit.
1: Well, that that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I might actually go out and see that. I think that would have been a better choice than what I saw last weekend, which was that Pompeii movie, but that's okay.
0: Well, so, in regards to that movie, and then we need to keep moving, uh-huh. uh, was was Emilia um, Hovovich in it?
1: Not that I'm aware of.
0: Because it was directed by, you know, uh... What was oh, it, Resident WS Evil Anderson? guy? Yeah. Right. The he Resident Evil movie guy. Right. In every movie he does, like he did The Three Musketeers, oh, there she is. Yeah. This, oh, there she is. I mean, uh, all the Resident <sighs> Evil movies. I'm right. surprised she wasn't in the Alien vs. Predator. movie, to tell you the truth. but uh, So she's not in this one? I don't remember her being in it. Uh, maybe, maybe they're...
1: She was none of the main characters.
0: Maybe they're on the outs.
1: <laughs> or maybe, you know, maybe she was busy doing something else. I don't know who knows. But uh, it was good seeing Trinity in that movie.
0: Oh um Kate Moss?
1: No, not Kate Moss. Uh, I I don't know but moss? moss.
0: Something something Moss.
1: Some yeah, the Moss is right. Uh so it was good seeing her although she's getting older. Um it was good seeing Moriarty from the uh uh Downey Jr. uh Sherlock movies. Oh,
0: I haven't
1: seen that. Um and it was good seeing uh, uh that actor from Game of Thrones who is the lead character?
0: I have not watched that either.
1: Well, um, the bastard son uh, who plays that actor in in Game of Thrones and quite well. He's a good actor. um, Went ahead and and, and was the main character on this one. But I got to tell you, I'm pretty sure his abs are computer generated, though. (laughs) It's just a theory. It's just a theory. But it's like, He's got – the first time you see him without a shirt on, he's just got these the, the just ridiculously huge abs. And it's like, that doesn't look natural. Anyway. So the special effects were pretty good. Well, good. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely would not suggest uh, paying too much to go and see the film.
0: Right. Okay. All right. Well, in regards, in regards to uh, films, uh, yes. it, last year, big movie last year, Gravity –
1: Gravity. Uh-huh.
0: Uh There was a scene in this comic book, very reminiscent of Gravity, where uh-huh. uh, they're having to use a air compressed cannon to uh-huh. propel them to the Defiant. Uh, yep. Didn't care for that scene in this issue at all. Yeah. Well, I thought it was. It looked kind of ridiculous having you know seven eight guys hanging off of a wire one, th- one thread being pulled by a you know fire extinguisher type thing. Uh, I I get it but uh, it just seemed like it went on way too long. And it didn't explain how they even get into the ship. The airlock wasn't going to open, so he was going to blast it with an air cannon and somehow get the door open, but leave it intact enough that they can get in, shut the door, and then repressurize the airlock. I didn't buy any of that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, When he first mentions the idea of them going to the Defiant to get new components for their... Spacesuits and stuff other things they need i thought oh well that's kind of clever okay and then they actually do it and it's like there's all these issues with that idea and and they completely occurred to me and i think they occurred to you too i mean you've mentioned some of them and uh it's like at first it sounds like a good idea but the actual execution of it's kind of right yeah but whatever it's just moving the story along you know, we need right. we need to get the components. We need to get back out there. We need to fix the conduit. Blah blah blah. So,
0: right. I just think that if those five pages were missing, this book would have been a lot better. It would have been a more streamlined story, and I would have rather seen more of the Maquis interaction than than those five pages. And that's a, that's a lot of time to spend on this one little story that really doesn't do anything. Right You get to see cool spacesuit action, so I guess that's something.
1: Right. And I will say, Gravity has some pretty cool uh, spacesuit action. Uh, Incredibly implausible and hard to believe, but if you maintain your uh, suspended disbelief, um, it's a pretty good movie.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that offline,
1: because I I have
0: some things to say.
1: (laughs) Okay, okay.
0: All right, and then anything else cuz that was really my
1: last comment. I I thought it was a little odd at the beginning of the issue where uh how wrong Cisco is about the threat that that shuttle represents to the station. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and especially in hindsight because he kind of he kind of almost ridicules uh, Kira You know, when she points out that it could be a my ma- ma- key trick um given the shuttle's origin point. And you know, like Cisco's like well, I don't think two living guys uh, are going to be in a tax squadron. <laughs> You're such a silly woman. And then, uh, yeah, bring it on board. Open it up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no no reason to put any type of quarantine on it. Just no, 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 no. no. And get all that in there. Let's breathe in that air.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's no reason to leave it, like, tractored off the station and maybe beam in somebody with uh with a spacesuit just to check things out. Now, let's bring it in. Anyway. But how could he how could he have known there was plague on board? But still, um I just thought he was he turned out kind of the fool, quite frankly. And uh, I don't I don't like that because I like Cisco. Uh, I like Cisco. Benji. Yeah, so um and my last comment is, at the beginning of the issue, uh, Cisco's log is talking about how uh, they should be fully operational in two days. <laughs> After the, the trip in, the, in this issue number two, uh, going back and forth through the wormhole uh, the station. And it's like, really? Two more days? Um, I'm not 100% sure how much time elapsed since the very end of the last issue, and now... But it gives you the impression it was pretty quick. Right. you know. Right. They're pretty much on the heels of each other. And it's only going to take two days to fix all that damage, particularly the docking pylon. I mean, depending where the, where the docking pylon ended up being anyway. I mean, we mentioned that. Did it go right. through the wormhole with them? So they had to tractor it back with them? Because I don't think they fixed it on the, uh, on the Gamma Quadrant side.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either.
1: So I would think a big structure like that, I don't care how good your technology is. It's probably going to take a few more than a couple of days to uh, get that reattached, properly uh, re-hooked up. I mean, water, electricity, you know, all the, the wires involved probably feeding a structure like that. Right. I don't know. I think it's more than two days. Maybe more like two months. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I didn't get that either. It, it seemed a little
1: quick. Yeah. I'm just speaking through a uh, 21st century, uh, technology bias. Okay. And that's the last thing I have to say.
0: Last thing? Okay. All right. I thought you were going to talk about the fight scene where Odo and Worf take out a bunch of, uh, black clad ninjas.
1: <laughs> you would be wrong about that.
0: <laughs> it does show Odo doing a little bit of his Mr. Fantastic Plastic Man, but, uh, Not as much as we used to see in the um, Malibu days.
1: Right. Yeah, he would go plastic man at the at the smallest provocation.
0: All right. Well, next week we're going to do Voyager Marvel Comics issues four through six. Uh, As everybody knows, we already did issues one through three uh, way back when, when we uh, did like episode fifty-two, I believe it was. With uh, we had a guest star or guest host. Uh, came in and and wanted to do Voyager so uh, you can go back and listen to that and then come back next week and we'll do uh, 4 through 6
1: right and I have I have read 4 through 6 and I don't recall anything in there uh, directly tying to 1 through 3 so
0: okay good so 3 didn't leave on a cliffhanger that's that's good to know
1: yeah correct
0: alright well then uh, that wraps it up and we'll be back
1: next week alright Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star-t-comic-book-review at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.st.com comicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at FirstName Name ST Comic Second Name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here